If you would, turn to the book of Romans. We are back in Romans. And hopefully, in the book of Romans, we will go quickly. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing today. We're going to look at verse 12 through 14 of chapter 6. Then we're going to do 15 through 23 next week. And then the week after that, we may do the whole, the whole chapter, chapter 7. And then come to, in July, come to probably one of the greatest chapters ever written in the Bible, which is Romans chapter 8, which we will go through and see all the wonderful truth that it has for us as Christians. One of the things we talked about last week was that we were being determined to go home, and when we go home, we go home walking in holiness, and we're to be holy this whole stretch of the way until God calls us home. We're in a section of Romans which allows us to see that this walk, this walk of holiness, this walk of the Christian life is for all of life. In fact, William Barclay, commentator on the Bible, wrote this. He said, Christianity is not an emotional experience. It's a way of life. Christians are not meant to wallow in an experience, however wonderful. They're meant to go out and live a certain kind of life that faces the world's attacks and problems head on. It is common in the world of religious life to sit in church and feel a wave of feeling sweep over us. It is not an uncommon experience when we sit alone to feel Christ very near. But Christianity, the Christianity that which has stopped there has stopped halfway. That emotion must be translated into action. Christianity can never be only an experience of the inner being. It must be a life in the marketplace. So we come to a section of Scripture in the book of Romans, which basically begins an exhortation. Now, the first five chapters, I know we haven't been there in a good while, but the first five chapters gave us tremendous doctrinal truths concerning man's condition before God then Paul moves and tells us of justification through Christ. He tells us how the law cannot justify us, but that God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what we need to understand is that Paul never exhorts his readers until they understand the basis for the exhortation. So verses 1 through 11 gives us that understanding. He says, this is our oneness with Christ, our union with Christ. Whatever happened to the head of this spiritual race has happened to us. We understand that. When Jesus died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was raised, we were raised. And we were raised to sit in the heavenly places as we read this morning for our call to worship. So we have that great doctrinal truth. So Paul then asks us to line up our thinking with the truth. Because ultimately, folks, reality is what God says it is. Ultimately, reality is what God says it is. We've died to sin. That is ultimate reality. Yet, these kind of doctrines that we read from Paul are 
of no value unless they are put into practice. We have to put it into practice. We are to change our thinking in regard to sin. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Look at verse 11. It says, so you also must consider, or your translation may say reckon, yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we are to think on those things. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. And that is an accounting term. It means counted as a fact. And in fact, Barclay again gives us a good statement about the reasoning for reckoning. He says the key word is reckon. It's the same root as in verse four, chapter three, 4, verse 3, and elsewhere with the same bookkeeping metaphor in mind. He says, do the sum, add it up, and see what it comes to. The Messiah has died, once for all, has been raised, and you are by baptism into his death in the Messiah. Therefore, you too have died once for all and have been raised. So the reckoning in question is to take place in the believing thought processes of the Christian. The point is, as not in some schemes of piety, that the reckoning achieves the result of dying to sin and coming alive to God any more than someone adding up a column of figures creates result out of nothing. However, it opens the eyes of the mind and the heart to recognize what is in fact true. So why do we have to then reckon ourselves dead to sin? Why? It's because sin's going to raise its ugly head and rebel against the truth. It is our responsibility then to quell the rebellion. And this is what our passage tells us. Verse 12, read along with me. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign. Where? In your mortal bodies. Dear friends, understand this. We are told that we have died to sin, but guess what has happened? There is in our mortal bodies a war that is going on. Paul uses the term soma, which is a term for physical body. Elsewhere, where he talks about the flesh, he uses a different term called sarx in the Greek. It's a total different thing. So you have a physical body, then you have that sinful nature, which is described as the flesh. But here in this, when he's saying this, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. This is what we need to understand, that, that in, within our mortal bodies, there is going to be a war that's going to rage against the Spirit. Listen to what James chapter 4, verse 1 says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? within you. Then 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So we have a war that is going on. 
the particular war that Paul is talking about is war that is within our members. Why? Well, sin was the reigning kingdom. If you think about that, that was the reigning kingdom. But if you are in Christ, there is that sin is no longer king. There has been a change of authority. There's been a change of dominion. There's a change of loyalty. A new king sits on the throne. However, within even within our mortal bodies, there are passions within that try to take over. So when we think about, when we speak of living by the truth of these words, we have to understand that this passage also speaks about spiritual warfare. Now, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But what is Paul is saying is this, though we are dead to sin, sin is not dead. Listen to what I just said. Even though we're dead to sin, sin is not dead. You know very well that sin is still around. It is still present. But we're dead to the dominion and the power and the reign of sin. We need not sin. We will, but we need not. So when we're looking here, we need to understand this. Our bodies are going to contain an element of sin within them. Now understand, understand, dear people, there is a teaching that went back a long time ago that talked about matter being evil. In other words, our bodies are just evil. Sin dwells all in our bodies, nowhere else. So therefore, anything we did with our bodies was okay as long as the spiritual side of man continued to praise and glorify God. In other words, you could sin all your want and you wouldn't have any consequences whatsoever because it was only your body. However, we need to understand this. We're not talking about that, and I don't believe Paul is talking about that. I believe that what he's saying is our body has natural instincts, but those instincts can be turned into lusts. They can be turned into lusts and desires that are incompatible with the Christian life. They will try to trip us. They will try to dominate us. They will try to control us. And I want to talk about that in just a minute, how that's, that happens. But what I want you to get from these verses is this. How do we wage war? How do we quell the rebellion that's going on within us? Let me give you the first point. You don't let a coup take place. You don't let a coup take place. You don't let another rule. The definition of, coup, of a coup is a sudden, violent, illegal seizure of power from an authority. And many scholars consider a coup to actually take place and successful when the usurpers seize and hold power for at least seven days. That's what a coup is in our, within different countries and different governments. That is what's happened. What we have to do is understand we cannot let it take place within us who are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is our responsibility. Christianity is not just passivity. We're just going to let go and let God. We're just going to let Jesus, you know, take the reins and do all this other kind of stuff, and we just sit back and do nothing. Paul is saying, look, you have died to sin. Therefore, he says, do not let sin reign. That's your responsibility. How do we do that? We abide in truth. We've died to sin. 
Now we have to act like it. We are not, as we said, called to let go and let God. We're called to act. How do we do that? Verse 11, we keep daily reckoning ourselves dead to sin. Second point is this. If we're going to wage this war, not only we're not going to let another rule, we're not going to let sin have dominion over us, we're not going to give our weapons over to the enemy. Now, I want you to listen. Verse 13. I want you to look at these words, please, in that. It says, do not present your members. And then he says, to sin as instruments. And then he says, present. He says that two times, okay? Present. So what we're going to do then is understand those words because it's very, very important. Members means that part of the body where there is sin residing, those things that the faculties and the powers that we have, such as mental powers, such as thought processes, thought, uh, uh, the power of reasoning, the power of imagination. It always includes the emotions as well. Instruments is defined in a word that's really interesting. Think about this, folks. This is what he's saying. The word instrument is defined as weapons in Greek. The word present means to put at the disposal of or allow to use. So let's look at what he is really saying. Let's put it together. He is saying this. Do not put at the disposal of your enemy for his use to wage war against God and yourself any of your faculties or your bodies for they are your weapons. Your enemy, sin, will use these for unrighteousness. What is unrighteousness? It's everything that's opposed to God and to his holiness. It's also everything that's opposed to the rule and the reign of God. We, God, basically, we are dead to sin. We understand that. Jesus Christ is reigning, but if we get involved in anything that opposes that rule and reign, we are walking in unrighteousness. So in a nutshell, we must not allow any one of our faculties to be used in the service of sin. That's why Paul will learn a little bit later in Romans 14 says, abstain from the desires of the flesh. He says, don't even make any provision for them to fulfill the lust of the flesh. The apostle John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what we're seeing is, he is saying, look, in your physical bodies, there are going to be some things. They're going to have some desires. You're going to have some passions. It's going to be, it can be used by the enemy. And so we need to know this and we don't need to give over those instruments, those weapons to our enemy. So how do we do this? How do we abstain? How do we uh, not walk in unrighteousness? Here it is. Third point, believe the truth of what was already stated in verses 1 through 11, and you present your bodies to God as weapons for righteousness. As weapons for righteousness. 
Now, earlier I stated this is really a statement of spiritual warfare, and I, I want to explain that. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at it, and you'll see it's a great passage dealing with the weapons of our warfare. Chapter 10, verse 3, says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Folks, this basically talks about warfare. This tells us this is a war of truth. We're not battling against flesh and blood. We are battling against these arguments, these lofty opinions that raise itself against the knowledge of God. And so the war that Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 6 is a war for truth. What truth? That we've been crucified, buried, and raised with Christ. And since we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, we have to stand upon that truth because it's in the realm of truth that we are tripped up in our walk with the Lord. Now, I want to explain this just kind of quickly. We may get in the weeds a little bit, but let me explain this, how this happens. Every one of us has BS, belief system. Where'd your mind go? All right, okay. We have a belief system. Psychologists will tell us that by the time we're six to eight, we learn these truths that we believe about ourselves and the world around us from everything that we've taken in from birth until that time. We will hear messages from those significant people around us. We will hear it in school. We'll watch it on TV. We'll do everything else. And we begin to determine, determine what our personal belief system is. We will see it in just, in, in just a way that it's just, it's really motivated by the sinful nature that we have within us until that is changed. For example, we can hear words, we can hear things. That's why the Bible says the power, uh, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So therefore we can hear things like, oh, you stupid child. And if that child hears that, say around age three, four, five, six, and it keeps being reinforced to them, what kind of belief system do you think they will grow up in? They will have that same thing. And therefore, they will say, I, I'm stupid, but now I've got to prove that I'm not. And so they will then regulate their whole life based upon a thought process 
that is going to tell them they are not stupid and so therefore they have to prove it to everybody and they have to be successful, they have to make decisions right, they have to do everything and everything that they get into and do is now tainted with that kind of thought process. What happens is when we have this belief system and different kinds of belief system, I can't tell what you yours are, but the different kinds of belief systems that we all have, we will even come to the scripture and we will read the scripture through those thought processes. We will then adapt those thought processes to the scripture or make the scripture adapt to our thought processes and we will literally live them out based upon those things. For example, you're stupid. You grew up and you just know you're stupid. No, I'm not stupid. But when you fall into sin because you're a Christian, guess what the messages start saying to you again and again and again and again? Stupid. You're a stupid Christian. How could you have ever done something like that? That's stupid. And it just resonates over and over and over again. And then finally, if you keep believing your truth, then you'll perhaps drop away from the faith because you said, I give up. I just can't do anything because I'm stupid. Just can't do it. And you will not walk in the truth. This is the point of spiritual warfare, dear friends. And here's what I mean by that. When your belief system, being desperately wicked in and of itself, is interpreting things through the Scripture and your belief system doesn't line up with the Word of God, you're going to continue to believe lies. And those lies, which devil is the father of lies, he's going to use that in your life so that you will never come to the truth. How do you come to the truth? You read it and you believe it. So when Christ says of you, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, why are you going to live in the darkness? Why not live in the light? The truth is the light. The truth is the light. You live there. You're in a different kingdom. When he says you're dead to sin, you are what? Dead to sin. Spiritual warfare, when we're talking about spiritual warfare, is a battle for truth. Listen to what it's, this thing is saying. It, it, is, it is beautiful thought on this thing when you're looking at it. He uses those little words, if you think about it. Every argument, I destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do we obey Christ? Believe what he said. Believe what he says about you. Believe that you have been created in his image. You have been born again. You are now dead to sin and you are alive to God. And what you need to do as you're doing spiritual warfare, dear folks, which is a battle for truth, compare your thoughts in any given moment to what the Bible says. And if they don't line up, reject your thoughts. Replace them with what the Bible says about you. That is spiritual warfare. It's not what you've been told. Here's what some of us have been told. I found this on a particular website, and this is a predominant teaching 
in charismatic circles as well as evangelical circles. Okay? Here's one of the things it says. Sometimes it seems as though there is no sin left unconfessed, but we still suffer demonic oppression for reasons unknown. The fact that the inequities of parents may be passed down to their children for generations is well documented in the Bible. Your ancestors may have been involved in practices that that gave legal rights to the enemy to sabotage your bloodline. You want to know why you have problems? Your ancestors. They call it generational curses. And please don't think this is not a prevalent kind of teaching. It is. And it happens in evangelical churches. And I even had to respond to one of our, our, our local guys here who put it on his Facebook that we needed to stand against generational curses so I sent him an article that says there are no generational curses Jesus became a curse for us but he goes on and says demons may cause these things suicidal thoughts being violated in dreams cancer arthritis infertility gynecological problems I knew that was my problem anyway negative soul ties what is negative soul ties Depression, insomnia, nightmares, compulsive negative thoughts, perversion, addictions, inability to pray, spiritual oppression. Do you have any of those problems? I do. I now have discovered by reading this website that my knees have demons. Every time I go up the stairs, they creak and they groan. I guess it's the demon in my knees because it's arthritis. And it says, demons cause arthritis. Folks, understand something. That is just not true. That's fanciful thinking. We do warfare by declaring the truth where our thoughts deceive us. We bring arguments. We bring every lofty opinion into captivity unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That is spiritual warfare. We do warfare by letting the word of God saturate us and renew our minds. What did Jesus pray for his disciples in the garden? He said, sanctify them, set them apart for holiness in your truth. Thy word is truth. You want to do warfare, change your thinking. Change your thinking. In fact, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What does he say? Think about those things. We'll find out in Romans chapter 12. He says... How are we going to be transformed? By the renewing of your what? Renewing of your demons. Get rid of your demons. Just get them on out. No, by the renewing of your mind. So as we're doing warfare, dear folks, we declare and state and understand the truth. So how do we keep this of being able to 
let not sin reign in our mortal bodies, what do we do? We present ourselves to God, our weapons, our instruments, our bodies. We present, we give it to him. We pray. We say, dear Lord, use me, this body, this mind, this soul. Use it for your glory and for your purposes. I present it to you today. Knowing I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to you. Use me, O Lord. That is what we do to be able to to then fulfill what he has stated in verse 13. It says, give them, present them to God. Your members as weapons weapons of righteousness then here's the last thing we have to continue to believe what is true so what is true verse 14 for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law under law but under grace now here's what the law says the law says that you have to justify yourself in God's eyes according to works by your own deeds. And we know and we understand from our previous study, the law will never deliver us from sin. So where are we now as Christians? We are what? Under grace, that unmerited favor of God. We have a new covenant. We have a new beginning. We are a new creation. We have God's power residing in us, which is all of grace. That's why sin's not going to have dominion of it, over us. Christ already defeated it. He has done it. He's done the work. Therefore, if you are in Christ, sin does not have dominion over you. In fact, you are kept for the day of salvation. Folks, what this is speaking of is that you are under grace. And this is one of the great doctrines called the doctrine of the perseverance of the faith. Basically, grace enables you and compels you to continue to believe what is true. If you have saving grace, the Bible says that you're going to persevere to the end and you are going to die in faith. How does that happen? Because God tells us that he who began a good work in us is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So therefore... As we continue walking and waging war, believing in the truth, God is going to keep us there and he's going to allow us by his grace to finish the race. That's what he's going to do. We are told to act. We are told to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Now, we then are cooperating with God in this area of sanctification, but our salvation has already been... uh, sustained not by our cooperation but because God in his infinite effectual grace saved us and since he saved us he's going to guarantee that he's going to preserve us we're already preserved that's what first Peter says we are preserved in that so we need to understand this that God is going to finish what he's completed you want to walk in holiness you want to walk in this warfare you want to walk in this life, this Christian life, you do the things that 1 through 14 have said. We reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God continually. Continually. An everyday thing. We present our bodies, our members of our bodies as weapons of righteousness to be used for righteous purposes.
Folks, here's the thing that we need to understand too. How do we know we're righteous? Someone might be asking today, how do we know? John tells us that in 1 John. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. What? You mean, we'll never sin again? No. Talking about the practice of continual saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to be, I'm going to continue in sin, but I've got my ticket home. The Bible says, no, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, listen, let no one deceive you. Who is the deceiver? (laughs) Satan. Let no one deceive you, not even those children of Satan. Don't let them deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And by this it is evident. Who are the children of God? Who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother dear folks how do you know you're righteous you're righteous if you've trusted in Christ his righteousness became your righteousness you are clothed in his righteousness it has been imputed to you and you strive for holiness you strive to do this kind of things. You use your body as weapons of righteousness. You desire it. You pray for it. You're grieved over your sin. But if you're never convicted of sin, dear people, you do not have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. I don't care what you say. If you say, no, 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 I can keep on sinning and do what I want, but I said that little prayer at VBS, I'm good and yet you have no conviction of sin, dear folks, you are not in Christ. Because those who are in Christ will hunger and thirst after righteousness. But folks, we're involved in a war. This warfare is real. It's a battle for the mind. It's a battle for the truth. It's a battle to see whether or not you're going to present your body as instruments of unrighteousness or righteousness. If you are righteous you will be doing what this says you have to act we are free we have been made free we are to act free we have been dead we are now dead to sin we have to act like it so folks i pray in your warfare that you see that this is the truth you don't need to go around binding satan you don't need to go around trying to do away with gener- generational curses what you need is the truth And that truth comes from the Word of God. In fact, John says this in one of his little epistles. It says, it does his heart wonderfully good to know that his children are walking in truth. So today, walk in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. 
that you are sanctifying us by your word. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to continue to present our bodies to you as instruments, as weapons of righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would use this congregation out in the workplace, out in the marketplace. Lord, for your glory, use them as they present themselves to you each day. Lord, let us, let us live the truth. We are dead to sin. We're alive to you. So, Father, I pray as they go from this place, Lord, that they would take the words of Paul, this exhortation, this encouragement, O oh Lord, that they are dead and that they will act as dead ones to sin. And, Father, they would glorify you in their bodies. So, Father, I pray, O oh Lord, that as we go this week, that you would continue to give us opportunity not only to be lights, but also, Lord, to be able to share from our mouth the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bring people across our path who need Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to speak the word. And as we speak the word, people will come to know you. Father, I pray blessings upon them. I pray that you would magnify yourself in them, that you would give them a constant victory over sin and the devil. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.